0: Now, for people who answer that question, no, absolutely not. One of the places they like to go in the Bible to make their point is the book of Leviticus. It seems to be a favorite place for those who want to dismiss the Bible as irrelevant and outdated, mostly because of its numerous laws and regulations. I think of laws like, don't glean the edges of your field. and d- Don't get a tattoo. Don't mix two kinds of fabric. Don't sow two kinds of seed. I mean, how could that possibly be helpful and relevant for us today? Never mind all the chapters about molds and skin diseases and all these other gross things. But at the same time, within Leviticus is arguably one of the least controversial, best-known, and most widely agreed upon verses in the entire Bible for Christians and non-Christians alike. And even more, if it were adhered to fully by everybody, if this one verse were perfectly obeyed, I'd suspect that it would solve just about every major social issue that we have in the entire world. Does anybody know what that one is? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Everybody loves this verse, right? And it seems especially relevant for us today. Now, for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, who I would hope would say that the Bible is relevant for us today, why don't we ever read Leviticus, Gordon Wenham is a Bible scholar who wrote an excellent commentary on Leviticus, and he begins his introduction to the book this way. He says, Leviticus used to be the first book that Jewish children studied in the synagogue. In the modern church, it tends to be the last part of the Bible anyone looks at seriously. Does that ring true to anybody here? So why is that? right? If we can be honest with each other, to be frank, it's dull. It's boring. It's repetitive. It's hard to understand. It's organized in a really peculiar way, and many of its principles are inaccessible to us through a a casual reading. And so it's weird. It seems like Leviticus is simultaneously one of the best and worst known books of the Bible, Ironically, it gets lots of attention if you want to claim that the Bible is irrelevant. And if you claim that the Bible is relevant, it gets very little attention. So I think it might be time for us to take a second look at this book and kick off a series here, just a four-part series on the book of Leviticus. And take a second look at Leviticus, maybe, maybe even for the first time. And I know what you're thinking. Here we go. You know, another Mother's Day, another sermon on Leviticus, right? Every Mother's Day, here we go again with Leviticus, just like the Mother's Day book of the Bible, right? We did not, I don't know how the scheduling aligned this way, that Mother's Day would be a kickoff for Leviticus, but we're going to roll with it, okay? So turn with me to Leviticus 11.45, if you have your Bible with you. Leviticus is the third book in your Bible. We're going to start in chapter 11. Read verse 45. So listen carefully with me to what God's word says in Leviticus 11.45. It says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So I would argue that this verse is an apt summary verse for the entire book of Leviticus. And but to see why, let me let me set up the context for this book just a little bit so we can understand where Leviticus fits in in the, in the bigger picture. And to do that, I want to jump back one book to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus opens up describing how the Israelites, their, their population, their numbers in Egypt had grown so large that the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, began to see them as a threat to the Egyptian kingdom. And so fearing their numbers, he forces the Israelites into slavery. And so it says in chapter one, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with harsh labor. And it even reaches the point later in that first chapter in Exodus where Pharaoh orders all the firstborn babies to be thrown into the Nile and killed. And so this great people are slaves. They're slaves to a king who detests them. And they're slaves in a land that is not their own. They're foreigners. And in the midst of this horrible oppression, God raises up Moses to deliver them from slavery, to deliver them from Egypt. And the first half of Exodus describes this great conflict between Pharaoh and God, with Moses as God's representative. And the turning point in that conflict comes about on the night of the Passover, this mountaintop event in Jewish history still celebrated today, the night of Passover, where God judges the land of Egypt He judges it by killing the firstborn living thing in every household. But he instructs the Israelites to kill a perfect male lamb with no defects and cover their doorways with its blood. And so God's judgment passes over the Israelites while the Egyptians and their livestock are killed. Then the Israelites are soon freed and set out to a land that will be all their own. And they journey to Mount Sinai, where God gives them the Ten Commandments and instructions for building a tabernacle, a a tent, where God himself will dwell. God is going to dwell among them. And Exodus concludes with the completion of this tabernacle at the base of Mount Sinai. And when we get to Leviticus the Israelites are still at Mount Sinai. Now, this is where the entire book of Leviticus takes place. It takes place at Mount Sinai. And the Israelites were expecting to journey to this land that God had promised them. So a group of recently and miraculously freed slaves is now learning about this God who has saved them. And if you read Leviticus, you notice it's mostly dictation. It's dictation from God to Moses. And it starts this way in chapter 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, and he said, speak to the Israelites. And then he gets into a bunch of laws, and immediately this is where we all start to struggle, right? It's easy to get lost in the details of Leviticus, because it can read just like a, like a cookbook at times, or even just a list of rules. And our text today is actually situated among one of these lists, It's a series of laws about holiness, but it's really a refrain that occurs throughout the book. Our verse is at the end of this long chapter of regulations on food and animals, which animals were clean and okay to eat, which were unclean and not to be eaten. And we find ourselves at the end of the chapter and it says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. And so let's observe a few things about this. First, you see here in this verse, and actually this is all over the Old Testament, God reminds the Israelites that he was the one who freed them from slavery, from an evil king, and ultimately from death in Egypt. It wasn't Moses, it wasn't the Israelites themselves, it was God. Let's make no mistake about that. And secondly, this command at the end of the text, to, to be holy, it's a consequence of something. It follows a therefore. And you know, what precedes the command is the grounds, it's the rationale, the motivation for the command. You can imagine here a father lecturing his child in college. Right? I'm your father who raised you and brought you up, and I'm paying your tuition. Therefore, work hard because I'm working hard. Right? I mean, sometimes I'll tell my son, one of my kids, I'll say, hey, could you go close this door or pick this up or something like that? And they'll say, why? And I'll say, because I'm your father. That's why. (laughs) Right? In other words, what I'm really saying here, implicit in this, is I'm your dad. I have the authority and the right to tell you what to do. I know what's best. And if you read through Leviticus, you'll notice these long lists of commands are sometimes followed by that phrase, I am the Lord. It's the same thing here. It's a motivation. It's a grounds for the commands. But what's God's motivation? What's God's motivation? Why is he dictating all these commands through Moses? And what what was the purpose of God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt? Why did God do it? And the text, our text today, says it really plainly. God brought them out of Egypt to be their God. And what does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, it could mean many things. It could mean that someone or something being your God, it it means that they're your provider, your protector, your deliverer, your savior, the, the ultimate authority, the final say on any matter, the most powerful one in the world, the highest good in their worldview. But it also meant, and this is important, that the presence of that God would be among them in their land. And this God, who reveals himself as Yahweh in in Exodus, God, wants to be their God. But it's a really peculiar statement if you reflect on it for a little bit. Because isn't he already their God? I mean, of course God is already their God, right? I mean... He's already their provider. He's already their savior and protector. He just saved them from Egypt. He's already powerful. Parting the Red Sea comes to mind, never mind all the other miracles recorded in the book of Exodus. He's the ultimate authority. He's the highest good in the universe, and he's everywhere. So why, why would God say it this way? I mean, it's not that God isn't already these things. He is. But being their God really means that the Israelites respond to him as God as well. They acknowledge that he is their God and they act like it. They acknowledge that he is with them, that he's their provider, their protector, deliverer, their authority. And they act like it. They respond to that truth. They worship, they obey, they adore and admire him. And it's really important to keep this theme in your mind, as an anchor point in the Bible. It's this foundational theme in all of Scripture that God is about the business of calling people back to himself. This is the basic problem in Scripture that God is fixing. Right before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve are in the presence of God. God walked among them. And his, and his creation had unfiltered communion with him. And sin fractured that relationship. It broke it. And as a result, humankind is kicked out of God's presence because imperfect people can't be in a perfect place with a perfect God because then the place wouldn't be perfect anymore. And a God who's completely good can't just let evil and sin go unpunished. And so people no longer see God face to face. He no longer walks among them. We've lost his presence. And so God didn't just call the Israelites out of Egypt. He's not just taking them from somewhere. He's taking them to something. He's calling them to something. He's calling them to himself. To having himself, Yahweh, as their God. I called you out of Egypt to be your God. You're saved from slavery and death and ultimately to me, to my presence, to my favor and protection, my way of life, my mission, my kingdom. This is why we have Leviticus. It's starting to answer the question of what the Israelites are saved to. We've seen what they're saved from. This is what they're saved to. It answers the question, well, now what? Now that the Israelites are free from the tyranny of an evil king and have escaped Egypt, what now? And God says at Mount Sinai, Now I will be your God, and consequently you will be my people. Now that you're free, I will be your God. God is calling a community to his presence. I am your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from an evil king to be your perfect king. God says this at the end of Leviticus in chapter 26. I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. God is calling a community to his presence. Now, of course, this theme isn't only in Leviticus. This call started way back in Genesis. But the book of Leviticus explores three specific pieces of this call. Okay, there are three things that the Israelites are called to in Leviticus. There's three overlapping circles if you want to think about it this way. Not in this order, but but this is what they are. First, there are laws in Leviticus about community. God is calling a community to his presence. He's calling hundreds of thousands of people together to be a community. This means they need to know how to live together. There need to be rules governing the community so it can thrive. This is the context of that famous and profound command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now the second and third pieces we see are the result of the fact that God is calling a community to his presence. And to be in the presence of God, for God to dwell among the people, Something has to be done about sin. Because a perfectly good God cannot look the other way when it comes to sin. If he did, he would cease to be perfectly good. We all know this intuitive. Like, a government that doesn't deal with crime and evil is not a good government. A God who does not deal with evil is not a good God. And so the second piece of, we see in Leviticus is the institution of the sacrificial system. And here, animals, or in some cases grains, are offered to God as a means of satisfying his judgment on their sin. And the climax of this sacrificial system is the Day of Atonement, which happened once a year. The third piece we see in Leviticus is in our text today. It's holiness. Be holy as I am holy. It's a very common phrase in Leviticus. It occurs five different times. And what is holiness? I mean, Fundamentally, holiness is something that is set apart. It is other. It's distinct. It's different. And these commands to be holy, like the one in our text today, remind the Israelites of the purpose for these laws. They were meant to be a distinctive people. They're gods now. They're part of God's family, God's community, God's kingdom. They don't look like the rest of the world. This is one of the reasons why there's all these food laws in Leviticus. If you're on a restricted diet, you are constantly, three times a day if you live in America, but constantly reminded that you're different. My son Joseph has, has celiac disease, and as a result, every day my wife and I have to think about the fact that he has celiac disease. We're constantly reminded about that fact. And the Levitical food laws are very similar. It's this ever-present reminder, you're different, you're mine, you're not like everybody else. So over the next several weeks, we're going to explore in greater detail each of these three pieces of Leviticus. Next week, uh, Sean Richmond is going to come here and he's going to talk about holiness. Uh, After that, Jeff's going to preach and then I'll come back and I'll talk about the sacrificial system and the call to sinlessness, to being right with God. And then we'll conclude in the last week and talk about the call to community. But for now, I want to make just one more observation about what we've seen so far. If you notice, all these things, holiness, community, sinlessness, every one of them glorifies God. They're evangelistic in nature. They are showing the world, the nations around the Israelites, how great God is. This is stated directly in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says, Observe my laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? A community that is set apart, that is different, that is clean, that is pure, a community that loves one another, whose God dwells in their midst, is attractive. It draws others in. God calls a community to his presence. And Leviticus explores specifics associated with God's call to community, to holiness, to be free from sin, to be right with Him. And so Leviticus is full of all these commands from God about how to live in this community, how to live as a sinful people with a holy God. But we have to notice something really, really important here. Notice what didn't happen to the Israelites. When did the Israelites receive these commands from God? Was it before or after they were rescued from Egypt? God didn't give the Israelites the law when they were enslaved. He didn't say when they were in Egypt, follow these laws and I'll free you and give you a land of your own and be your God. No, our text today shows the right chronology. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, past tense, to be your God. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. Now that you're free, now that I've saved you from slavery, let me tell you what I've saved you to. You're saved to my presence. And this is how it needs to look. And this same thing is what happened to us as Christians. We didn't follow a series of laws and get our acts together to become Christians. Do all these things, and then you'll be a Christian. No, we were deeply enslaved to our sins. And while we were sinners, we were rescued from them. Someone, Jesus, died in our place so we wouldn't have to. Because of his life, his holiness, his obedience, we get his reward because of our sin, our shame, our rebellion, he got our punishment. And just like the ancient Israelites, we don't obey our way to salvation. Obedience is the response to the salvation that's already given to us. And the same thing holds true to those freed slaves Standing at the base of Mount Sinai. If you think about it a little more, you might ask 3,500 years later, what has really changed? What is different about our story as a community of believers? God calls a community to his presence in Leviticus. Is God still calling a community to his presence? Has anything changed? Well, nothing and everything has changed, right? It's the same story, but it's different. It's amplified. It's greater. It's escalated to the nth degree. If you imagine a a conversation between an ancient Israelite at Mount Sinai and a modern Christian today, the ancient Israelite recalls with wonder, we were slaves to an evil king intent on destroying us, but we were covered by the blood of a lamb. And by no power of our own, we escaped death and were set free. What would the Christian community say? We were slaves to someone or something, too, that would ultimately destroy us. But worse, we were slaves to sin, slaves to our own idols, money, sex, power, whatever it is, approval, something we could never escape. But we were covered by the blood of the lamb, but not just any lamb, the perfect lamb of God, a person, Jesus Christ, God's own son, shed his blood so we could live. How are we saved? 1 Peter 1.19, by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And by no power of our own, we were set free. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. The ancient Israelite continues. Then, God formed us into a new community. And through Moses, he gave us a new law and a way of living that's unlike any other. The Christian agrees. God made us into a new community too. But now... The laws aren't just laws written on stone tablets. They're written on our hearts. They're not just spoken to an intermediary and recorded on on a tablet. God wrote the law on our hearts. It's inside us. This is Hebrews 10, 16, which is quoting a prophecy in Jeremiah 31. God says, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. The Israelite continues, we created a tent So God himself could dwell among us. Us too, says the Christian. But even more, God himself dwells within us. The Holy Spirit is inside us, not in a tent next door to us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who have you received from God? The Israelite goes on. And God is going to lead us to a great land of blessing Yes, says the Christian, but not just a great land to heaven itself. A perfect land, an eternal land. No tears, no pain, no evil. It never wastes away. Everything's exactly as it should be forever. The Israelite concludes, and all the people around us will know how great our God is. Amen, says the Christian friend. And not just in our region, but the whole world, the ends of the earth, every nation We'll know how great God is through our community. The patterns, the themes, the story, it's the same, but everything has escalated. In Leviticus, God called a community to his presence, and today God is still calling a community to his presence. And I make this illustration not to disparage the old testament faith or, or, or that that faith, but to show how it anticipates our own. As you read through scripture, you can think of that escalation that there is. These patterns, these themes just keep escalating and until they blow up in Jesus, and we get where we are today. Where God is still calling a community to his presence. We're still called to be a community unlike any other that will show the world what God is like. We're still called to holiness to be set apart, to be different, to be pure, to be righteous. We're still freed slaves, freed by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, and we're on a journey to a better place. God calls a community to his presence. Is Leviticus still relevant to us today? Well, many of the specifics may not be, but the principles are It's relevant because it shows us the kind of God we have. The book of Leviticus shows us some very specific ways to be called a community in his presence. And today, God is still doing that. He still wants to be our God. He's still calling us to community. He's still calling us to be right with him, to be free from sin. He's still calling us to be holy. He still wants to be our God. And let me tell you why this is just jaw-droppingly awesome, awesome news, right? And hear this. God is calling a community to his presence, and the presence of God is what we long for. It's what we long for. Being with him in the full measure of his presence is what we long for. The presence of God is what we were created for. It's the way things were supposed to be. We were created to enjoy him forever. It's the way things were before sin entered the world. And the whole arc of the Bible is just making things right again and restoring what was lost to sin. God is calling a community, and that includes you, all of us, me, to his presence. And we long for that. It's what we want more than anything else but you don't believe me. I know you don't believe me. I don't believe me. So I have to try and prove this to everybody in about five minutes. So let me, let me try that. Right now, if you think, just take a second and ask yourself what you long for. What do you strive for? Your deepest longings. Take a second. Where are we going to land? We're going to boil everything away, or we're going to be left with just a few fundamental root desires and longings. And what's the greatest of those going to be? You know, it's been said probably about a million times, and you've heard it before, but only because it's true. It's love. You long to be loved. You long to be loved, truly loved, and to enjoy everything that comes with that. When you're deeply loved by somebody, you're accepted. When you're deeply loved by somebody, you're cared for. They got your back. When you're deeply loved by somebody, you're cherished. You're secure. You don't want money. You want love. Money gets you a high social position. You're, you're admired and accepted. You really want love. Money gets you nice clothes and a cool car so people admire you and want to be with you. You want love. Money gets you power so you feel like you're in control of a chaotic world so you're secure. No, you really want love. You don't want sex. You want love. Sex is nothing less than the absolute closest you can physically be with somebody. You're accepted by them. You're not alone. You're cherished. You want love. Why do we hide things about ourselves? Why do we try to make ourselves look better when we mess something up? Why do we avoid taking blame for things? Why do we hide our most shameful thoughts or deeds? Why are you afraid of people finding out certain things about you? It's because you don't want to be rejected. You want the opposite. You want love, you want acceptance. What makes pain and suffering bearable but the love of somebody who walks through it with you? What makes joy and pleasure sweeter but sharing it with somebody you love? I could go on and on and on and on, but I hope you're getting the picture. Love. We crave it. We crave it so deeply, and we absolutely can never, ever get enough of it. I've been a parent for 10 years now. And I have poured out more love than I ever thought I was capable of to my children. I've spent entire days with, with just one of my kids, just showering them with love, undivided attention, praise, hugs, encouragement, gifts, kisses, everything. And guess what? It's not enough. It's not enough. The next morning, they wake up and they want more. I I can't fill it up. Nobody can. Nothing can. I'm 43 years old. I've been my father's son for 43 years. And a few months ago, he sent me an email and he said, You know, I think you're a great dad. And guess what? My heart sang. My dad loves me. He thinks I'm a great dad. I'm accepted. I'm loved. It doesn't get old. I haven't lived in that house for 20 years. It's not old. I still need it. I've been married to my beautiful wife for 13 years. And we have gazed into each other's eyes and said we love each other. We've written love letters and emails and heaped on the highest praises of how wonderful we are. Gifts and surprises and hugs and sacrificial love just all the time. And guess what? It's not enough. It's not enough. It, n- it never ends. We can't keep each other full. What? 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 I, I have to celebrate your birthday again? <laughs> Didn't we like do this last year and the year before? It's our anniversary, I'm like, didn't I have to celebrate our anniversary? I gotta get you flowers. I gotta do something. I gotta tell you I love you, dude. Like, when we did our vows, we said we loved each other. We were committed to it. Like, what? That's not enough, right? I mean, how preposterous it is to think of that, right? We we can never get enough of it. And Catherine and I are blessed. We have this wonderful community and friends and family. And they're just pouring love and acceptance on us all the time. And it's still not enough. We long for more. I need more. And what's the best love? The best love is love from someone you admire, that, you, that is beautiful to you, that's attractive to you, that's special. Right? Get a letter from your mom and dad. Hey, that's great. Get a letter from your hero, whoever that is, sports hero, political hero, whatever. Wow! They thought I did a great job, or whatever it is. And C.S. Lewis nails it on the head with this quote, if I find in myself a desire with nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for God. We were made for his presence. We were made to receive the love that comes from being in the presence of God. And we can never get enough of this love in this world because our need for love is infinite. We have a shovel and we're throwing sand into the Grand Canyon. I just just can't fill it up. It's infinite. And it's infinite because that's how we were made. Like a fish was made for water, we were made for God. We were made to be with God forever. And only an infinite God can fill our infinite need for love with his boundless, unquenchable, astounding, awesome, soul-satisfying, perfect love. And that God, that one, that God, is calling us to him. The God who loves us no less than his own son, who was tortured to death while we hated him so we could be with him. That God. That God is calling us to himself. It's his initiative, his plan, his call. And that God, that God is here right now. Really, actually here in this room. Not wishful thinking, not in the abstract, but the God of the universe the one who knows the orbit of every electron bouncing around in your brain right now as you hear this, that God who spoke the universe into existence, who loves you more than you could ever dare to dream, that God is here. If you are here right now and you are breathing, that God is calling you to his presence. There are no prerequisites Those have been satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who has taken away our sins and made us to be holy so we could be in the presence of the God who loves us more than we ever dared to dream. And so if you've never done that before, today's the day to accept that sacrifice for you and worship with us. Have the band come up <clears throat> And let's just soak in God's presence.